We're in Jeremiah chapter 10. We're going to read the 25 verses that are in that chapter. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens. Although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the people are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried, because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uppas, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the maker of all is he. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Pick up your bundle from the ground, you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and will cause them distress, that they may be found. Woe is me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. But I said, Truly this is a sickness, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my ropes are broken. My sons have gone from me and are no more. There is no one to stretch out my tent again or to set up my curtains. For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. The sound of a report, behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the land of the north to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a haunt of jackals. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. May your name be praised as your people come to know you more truly as you are, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. This particular passage in the book of Jeremiah 
is the one, for whatever reason uh, in my life, this is the one that has impacted me most profoundly in my life. And so uh, I am both delighted and, and uh, terrified to bring this passage to you this morning because there, there's great weight to what God is saying here, and I pray with all my heart that we won't walk away without it uh, truly impacting us. Proverbs 9, verse 10, is well known to many. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When you put the two halves of that powerful verse together, it tells us that the standing point and the very ground of all true wisdom and of all understanding is the fear of God. And it also tells us that the fear of God is absolutely inseparable from the knowledge of God. To know God is to fear God. And I believe that this, this whole reality of the fear of God has been so diminished even in the modern evangelical culture that we have largely lost the significance and the power of what Jeremiah is setting, what God through Jeremiah is setting before us. Jeremiah 10 is about rightly placed fear and wrongly placed fear. But what does it mean to fear God? More specifically, what does it mean for us who have been made the objects of God's grace to fear God? The Hebrew word for fear shows up 368 times in the Old Testament. That means it's a very important concept. Some English versions of the Bible render that word as revere or respect in many of its occurrences in the Old Testament. Is that, is that what the Bible means when it talks about our fear of God? Does it mean that we respect Him? Or does it mean something more? Keep that question firmly in mind as we proceed. Because that really cuts, that's the heart of the question. What is the legitimate fear for those who are the people of God, the legitimate fear of God? The first 16 verses of Jeremiah 10, there are four rounds of contrast between Israel's idols and Yahweh. And it always goes in that direction. He talks about Israel's idols and then he contrasts Yahweh with what he has just said four times. In each of the contrasts, Jeremiah starts by unveiling the stupidity, the stupidity, that's the word he uses, and foolishness of fearing and serving idols that men have made with their own hands. And then he declares the supreme wisdom of fearing and serving Yahweh, the one true God. His entire argument against idolatry hinges on the answer to one very simple question. Who is actually worthy of our fear? In the first contrast, in verses 1-7, through the essential point is that fearing something that can do neither harm nor good is delusional behavior. Fearing something that can do neither harm nor good is delusional behavior. In verses 2-5, through God declares through Jeremiah that the nations that surrounded Israel and Judah were terrified by the signs in the heavens. The pagan religions of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Ammon, Syria, held that the well-being of men 
could be radically altered on a dime depending on what was going on in the skies. Changes in the visible alignment of stars, solar and lunar eclipses, things like these were believed to have a huge impact on the well-being of the people and on the success of battles. In fact, they feared such things to the point, God says, of being terrified by them. So to address that fear, the nations created objects with their own hands that they believed could control those distant objects in the heavens and the impact that they had on earth, along with many other things in nature. But in verses 3 through 5, God declares what should have been self-evident to Israel and Judah. He said, the customs of the peoples are delusion. They cut wood from the forest. They sculpted it into an impressive form. They decorated it with gold and silver. They even make clothes for it out of violet and purple linen. That's the, the, the precious, the valuable linens. And then they call it their God and they bow down to it and they count on it to deliver them. But every idol that they create... God says, is unable even to stand up on its own. They have to fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it won't totter and fall over. He declares that their idols are lifeless. They are powerless even to stand or walk. They have to put them on their shoulders and carry them around because they have no mobility. And then he says, they can't even speak. They can't even speak. God says those idols are like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. And then comes the punchline at the end of verse 5. And beloved, this is one of the most, this is one of the most critically defining verses in the Old Testament when it comes to what fear is all about. It says, do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. When you think about fear, do you think about what good something can do that you're afraid of? This is very important, guys. Very, very important. We'll talk about it quite a bit. In Isaiah chapter 41, verses 23 and 24, God taunts the idols of His people just as Jeremiah, as He does through Jeremiah here. He says, declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, good or harm. Same exact two Hebrew words that Jeremiah uses. That we may anxiously look about and fear together. Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Israel's false gods, like the gods of the nations around them, were utterly unworthy, utterly, completely unworthy of their fear because they could do neither harm nor good. And then comes the contrast in verses 6 and 7 of Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah says of Yahweh, There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and great is your name in might. That's a really important statement. Great is your name in might, in power. God's name, that which is true of the person and the character and the attributes of God, is demonstrated in His power, in His mighty interventions in the world that He created. 
In the next verse, Jeremiah says, Who would not fear you, O Yahweh? O King of the nations, indeed it is your due. It's the only response that makes any sense if we really know who we're dealing with. He says, for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. See, it made absolutely no sense to fear and serve gods of one's own making, and it made absolutely no sense not to fear and worship Yahweh. It's the greatest of all no-brainers that men should bow down before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because he alone controls all good and all harm. Everything else is just an instrument. Yahweh controls all good and all harm, all blessing and all curse. He and he alone. If we don't agree with that, we don't understand the sovereignty of the one that we worship. To fear something that can do no harm and no good is delusional behavior. And that kind of delusion takes work. Verses 8-10. through 10, and the, Israel persisted in doing what made absolutely no sense instead of turning their attention back to the one, the worship of whom made absolutely perfect sense. And that's delusional behavior. The second of the four contrasts in chapter 10 begins in verse 8. It says, but they are altogether stupid. And foolish in their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. It took work. It took work for Israel and Judah to turn to gods of their own making. They had become stupid and foolish. Do you know that Jeremiah 10 is the only chapter in the whole Bible that uses the word stupid more than once? And it uses it three times. And the stupidity that God ascribes to Israel and Judah in this passage required hard work to maintain. God calls it their discipline of delusion. Their discipline of delusion. That phrase harkens back to chapter 8, verse 5, when God said they have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Israel and Judah had carefully practiced and finally honed the hard work of self-deceit and delusion that was required to turn away to waterless holes in the ground when they had been brought into covenant relationship with the fountain of living waters. That takes work. Each of them taught himself and his fellow Israelite to believe that which was utterly unworthy to be believed. It took real work to believe and to sustain the conviction that a chunk of wood could do anything at all, much less be worthy of fear and worship. And then comes the contrast. Verse 10, but Yahweh is the true God, the living God, the everlasting King. Israel's fake gods were inanimate and short-lived, but God is the living God and everlasting King. And then Jeremiah turns yet again to the fearsomeness of God. He says, at His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. To fear that which can do no harm and no good is delusional behavior. And that kind of delusion takes work. 
In the third contrast, God declares through Jeremiah that creation settles the matter. Creation settles the matter at hand. Back in verse 2, God said that the nations were terrified by the signs in the heavens. Now in verse 11, He says, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And then comes the contrast. Verse 12, He says of God, It is He. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding, has stretched out the heavens. (laughs) Israel and, and Judah had come to fear created things, just like all the nations around them, and to make gods for themselves out of other created things. Gods to whom they then attributed power and control over the created things that they thought controlled their well-being. Things like weather and fertility and diseases and scary powerful nations. If that doesn't hit home for us, beloved, we're not paying attention. Have you ever devoted energy and effort to acquiring control over one created thing, especially something created by man, because you were convinced it would somehow give you control over other created things that either threatened your well-being or guaranteed your well-being? In affluent Western cultures like ours, people do that with material wealth all the time. Poor cultures make idols of wood and hope those idols can bring them well-being. We make idols of money and stuff, and we're sure that that can bring us well-being. We're sure that with enough money and enough stuff, we can control the other things in God's creation that are a threat to us. And we can lay hold of the things that make it well with us. Colossians 3 verse 5 says greed amounts to idolatry. So we devote ourselves to the acquisition of material wealth. But here's what decisively settles the matter of going after one created thing in our effort to address our fear of other created things. God made everything. The only things that men make come from the raw materials that he gave us. God spoke everything into existence. Before he did, there was nothing except him. And verse 13 tells us that God is fearsome not only in his power to create, but also in his power to sustain and provide for his creation. The verse begins, when he utters his voice. Now, just stop for a minute and contrast that with verse verse 5. He said the idols of the people, they can't even speak. Now he says, when God utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and He causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from His storehouses. This is marvelous. Look at the nouns in those verses. Tumult, clouds, lightning, wind. Even in God's gracious provision of the rain that nurtures and sustains so many things in His creation, God demonstrates His fearsomeness. When we know who created and controls everything, we know where to go for all protection and all provision. And to go anywhere else is delusional behavior. It really is a no-brainer. 
Jeremiah begins his fourth contrast between the idols of Israel and Yahweh in verses 14 to 16 by repeating the central point of the other indictments that he's already presented. And that central point is the stupidity of worshiping things that have no breath, things that are worthless, things that will perish when the time of their punishment comes from the hand of the the real, eternal, powerful God. The new element in this final contrast comes when Jeremiah turns his attention to Yahweh and makes the contrast. And he says, listen to this, the portion of Jacob is not like these fake gods. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Jeremiah picks up yet again on the fact that Yahweh is the creator, the maker of all. And he declares yet again something he's said many times already, that Yahweh is the God of armies, of the armies of heaven and the armies of earth. But what he adds here, what he adds here is so very important. Yahweh is the portion that means the inheritance of Jacob, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Israel's inheritance is God and God's inheritance is Israel. Both of those declarations pervade the Old and New Testaments. God's dealings with His people are always grounded in His covenant relationship with His people. My brother Don this morning talked about God's chesed, His steadfast covenant love. Israel had treated their covenant relationship with the living God, their Creator, Redeemer, King, as if it was nothing. As if God shouldn't mind that they had become so practiced at the spiritual adultery of making alliances with godless nations and chasing after the man-made gods of those nations. It's as if they, as if they were thumbing their nose at God and saying, Oh, it's great, Yahweh, that you called us out from among all the peoples of the earth to be your own inheritance, but surely you won't mind if we double cover a little bit just to, to make certain. Glad we don't do that. But God through His faithful prophet says to Israel and Judah, I, the maker of all things, the God who commands the armies of heaven and earth, I am your inheritance and you are Mine. And beloved, that, that is why Israel and Judah could not escape God's painful judgment for their rebellion against Him because they were His people. I go again to Amos chapter 3, verse 2. It's a verse that God brings to my mind all the time. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Judah feared Egypt. They feared Assyria. They feared Babylon. So they embraced the worship of the false gods of those nations and made their own idols out of wood to mimic those that were carried around by those nations. It was fear that drove their idolatry. But that fear was absolutely unwarranted. Those nations that that terrified them were as unworthy of Judah's fear as were their pathetic idols of wood. 
Those nations were mere instruments of the one true God. In 2 Kings 19, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent an overwhelming army to invade the city of Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah, Yahweh Himself declared that He would defend the city, quote, to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. You know what happened that very night after God made that declaration? The angel of Yahweh, who is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus, killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. And that was the end of Assyria's campaign to take the city of Jerusalem. Yet Assyria feared blocks of wood and did not fear Yahweh. You see why God calls idolatry stupid? The question that Israel and Judah should have been asking was not who will protect us from Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. The question that Israel and Judah should have been asking was who will protect us from Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, when we turn our face away from Him. And beloved, there is a strongly related question that you and I need to be asking regularly. We who are heirs of the new covenant sealed in the blood of Almighty God's only Son should be asking who will protect us from His hand of judgment if we turn our face away from Him. If you are a child of God purely by His grace, through childlike faith in Jesus Christ, which is the only way to be a child of God, then during the very short span of your mortal life on this earth, you have far more cause to fear the punishment of God than an unbeliever does. Let me say that again. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have far more cause to fear the punishment of God during your earthly life than an unbeliever does. Amos 3, verse 2. And scores of other verses. And when we, brothers and sisters, when you and I are pursuing well-being in anyone or anything other than God, that fear should keep us awake at night. We must do away with every notion of the fear of God that diminishes real, knee-knocking, cold-sweat-producing terror. If you're not afraid of what God can do to you, you have no idea who you're dealing with. Many professing believers have redefined the God of the Bible to turn Him into a benign, harmless God who is tolerant of whatever His people want to do. He's that loving. But they forget how holy He is. God has never been that God. And He never will be. In the concluding verses of this chapter, in verses 19 to 25, the faithful prophet Jeremiah identifies himself with the wayward people, much like Isaiah does at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Woe is me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. The wound that comes from the chastising judgment of God. And then he says a couple of verses later, The shepherds have become stupid. That's the third occurrence and have not sought Yahweh. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all the flock is scattered. And then he speaks of the fearsome judgment that God 
have been telling Judah about through him, through Jeremiah, ever since the first chapter of this book. A great commotion out of the land of the north to make the cities of Judah a desolation and a haunt of jackals. I say again, if you want to know how bad the siege of Jerusalem got, read Deuteronomy 28, written a thousand years before the siege happened. In verses 23 to 25, Jeremiah speaks of two very different judgments. And please track with me here. The first judgment he talks about is directed by God against his covenant people. The second is directed by God against the godless nations. Verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah says, I know, O Yahweh, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his own steps. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Passage that one of my brothers read in the worship this morning from Psalm 78 says the same thing. Father, don't correct me with the full weight of your anger, or I will be brought to nothing. Jeremiah is calling out to God to correct his people because without that correction, no man will remain on the path, the way that rightly responds to God and experiences blessedness. He asks God to judge his people, not with the full force of his anger, but so that his justice is satisfied. A justice that always extends grace to his own. The goal of that corrective judgment is never to destroy, it is always to restore. But then in verse 25, Jeremiah calls out to Yahweh again, but for a different kind of judgment. And now he calls for the full force of God's anger. He says, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name, for they have devoured Jacob, your inheritance. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. Beloved, this is of exceedingly great importance, so please listen. If you are a redeemed child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a judgment that you should absolutely fear from the hands of God. And there's a judgment you absolutely should not fear from the hand of God. The judgment you should fear is His temporary corrective judgment. And if you think that's a small thing, You don't know your father very well at all. If you think that his fatherly discipline will never disrupt your life enough to warrant very real fear, you don't know your father very well at all. But there's another judgment that is surely coming from the hand of God that gives, that gives you absolutely no cause to fear once you've put your trust in Jesus. No cause to fear. A judgment that you are supposed to know can never be applied to you because it was already applied to Jesus in your place. And that judgment is the eternal condemnation that every single one of us on earth deserves. Every single one of us who's ever been on earth, except for Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus' death as your only sufficient payment for your sin, 
if you're trusting in His righteousness as your only qualification to dwell in the presence of our holy God, then the eternal punishment that was due to you and to me has already been paid in full. That's the Gospel. The threat of that judgment no longer applies to you in any way. You're supposed to know that. That's what John the Apostle is talking about at the end of 1 John 4 when he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And listen, and we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us. And listen, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Beloved, the punishment that He's saying we don't have to fear anymore is the punishment on the day of judgment. If your trust is in Jesus, God intends for you to be absolutely convinced of the love that God has for you and for all the redeemed of Christ, you're supposed to be confident in the day of judgment. You are supposed to be excited about the return of Jesus, not dreading it. You're supposed to have no fear that you will ever have to present your works before God in order to determine whether you will be allowed to dwell with Him forever or cast from His presence forever. Be cast from His presence forever because that judgment, you already failed it. We all already failed it. Jesus paid that debt. John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. Praise God! For the brief time that remains to us this morning, I want to talk about why our fear of God attracts us to Him instead of driving us away from Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses spoke to the next generation of Israelites after the generation of the Exodus. That new generation was just about to enter into the land of promise. He reminded them of a day 40 years earlier, recorded in Exodus chapter 20, the day when they pleaded with Moses not to let God speak to them directly lest they die. And then Moses reminded them of how God answered that request on that day. God said, I have heard, he said, Moses, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. They got it right. You know how many times in the Old Testament God says that Israel did well and got it right? If you start scanning through the Old Testament looking for those occurrences, you'll run out of verses before you run out of fingers to count them on. When Israel feared that hearing the voice of God would slay them because He is that holy and they are that unholy, that's when they understood who they were dealing with. And God said they did. 
And right after that, God said to Moses, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. He's talking about a fear that blesses. A fear that makes it well with His people. Friends, how can fearing the One who controls all harm bless us? Well, it's simple. Because He's also the One who controls all good. And He has made us who trust in Jesus the everlasting objects of His steadfast covenant love. And He says in Romans 8, Nothing in His creation can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, including you. When our fear is rightly placed only in Him, that fear attracts. I'm going to give you an imperfect but useful illustration of fear that attracts. I used this many years ago when I preached on that that theme. The film clip I'm about to show you is very short. I promise I'll stop it before it gets to the rough part. I want you to think about what makes the woman in this film film clip move toward something that she fears with a visceral life and death fear. In fact, something she had just been running from with every fiber of her being. Why did that woman, the character Andero, move toward King Kong? Was it because she feared him less than the T-Rex? No. If Kong was less fearsome to her than the T-Rex, there would have been no point in moving toward King Kong. It would have just slightly delayed her death. She went to him because he was the most fearsome thing that she had ever laid eyes on and she knew that he cared for her. In the previous eight minutes of the film, he had been dispatching creatures that were trying to eat her over and over and that's why he had that big gaping wound on his head. He had laid down his life to try to protect her She knew that he cared for her and that he was the scariest thing that she had ever encountered. Now let's ratchet up that very imperfect illustration so that we're now talking about perfect fearsomeness and perfect love. Psalm 2 speaks of the coronation day of the Son of the living God, the King of Kings. The day when God installs His beloved Son on His rightful throne on God's holy mountain in Zion. It says God will terrify the rulers of the nations who have rebelled against Him and against His Messiah. It says that Messiah, the Christ, will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like pottery. And the last verse of that great psalm says, Do homage to the Son, literally kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And then comes the only positive statement to mankind in that psalm. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Why are those who take refuge in Christ so richly blessed? Precisely because He is so fearsome. When you know that the one true God, the only one in existence who actually controls 
all harm and all good. The only one who is worthy of all fear has made you the object of his steadfast, loyal, unchanging, covenant love. What does that fear drive you to do? To run toward him and to cling to him. Not because his perfect love for you makes him any less fearsome, but precisely because it doesn't. God's grace and God's fearsomeness are not mutually exclusive things. In fact, you cannot comprehend the weightiness of God's grace if you don't know how fearsome He is. If you don't know how holy He is and how, how, how holy you aren't and what you actually deserve from His hand and how very able He is to dispense that justice and that wrath on you, you have no idea how magnificent is His grace. Our benign, harmless, vending machine replacements for God are worthy only of God's mockery. What do you fear? What do you fear? What do you believe determines your well-being? And I'm not talking about what you'd testify to if someone put you in a courtroom. I'm talking about how you live day by day. If it's anything other than God then there's some questions you need to ask about that thing, whatever it is. Did it always exist? Will it always exist? Can it speak the universe into existence? Can it cause everything that it has brought into existence to cease to exist with nothing but a spoken word? Can it shake the whole earth? Can it control the wind, the rain, the lightning, the seasons? Will it control your eternal destiny? If the answer to those questions is no, then why would you ascribe to it the ability to determine your well-being? Beloved, you know what God is saying to us as His people in this passage? Stop being stupid. Stop filling your life with futile, pointless anxiety and wasted effort because you're fearing things that are absolutely unworthy of any fear at all. Your well-being and mine is in God's hand alone. All blessing and all curse proceed from God alone. His grace, not our panicked manipulations, assures us of good. He is our rock, our refuge, our strength, our fountain of living water. There is no other. So how about if we stop digging useless holes in the ground that can't even hold water, much less produce it? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's fear Him and nothing else. Judah didn't listen when God told him these things. Are we listening? The Christian life, beloved, is not about prioritizing our fears. It isn't about fearing God more than we fear other fearsome things. It's about believing and acting upon two essential truths that are always true for everyone who belongs to Jesus. That the one true God is the only one worthy of our fear. And that nothing and no one will ever separate us from His perfect, loyal, steadfast covenant love toward us that we have only in union with Jesus Christ.
Dear Father, thank you that your perfect love for all of us who trust in Jesus has been so marvelously proven at the cross and at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We have come to know and have believed the love that you have for us. Thank you, loving Father, that you promise not to leave us in the broken cisterns that we dig for ourselves because we stupidly fear things that can neither bless nor curse, that you won't leave us in those places. Thank you that you are faithfully at work every day of our lives to break us of our misplaced fears so that we may fear only you. Trust only you. Adore only you. Obey only you. Thank you, Father, for making us your treasured inheritance and making you our treasured inheritance forever. And thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that made it so. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.